in a reading from Hebrews chapter 10, the entire chapter. I would just remind you before I begin reading this that the entire epistle to the Hebrews has a central theme, and that is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant, that our new high priest is better than the priests of the old covenant, that his sacrifice is better than the sacrifices of the old covenant, and on and on, many different sub-themes, all contributing to this great theme that the new covenant is better than the old. And it is, I think, tragic when some parts of this epistle are read in a way that makes it seem as if somehow it is not better, but worse. So listen carefully to the reading of the word of God, and then we will pray over the word that we have read. We will pray for the preaching of the word, and we will ask the Lord to speak to us clearly. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Thus uh, says the Lord, pardon me. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Gracious Father, We thank you, we praise you for the provision of your word for your people. We thank you that every jot and every tittle of it is truth and 100% truth, that there is is no flaw in it. We thank you, Father, for the assurance that we have even in the creed that we recited together earlier of the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you that this assurance is firmly rooted in your word. We thank you that even here in this chapter that we have just read, there is that marvelous, marvelous assurance that where sins have been remitted, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. We thank you that under the new covenant we do not need to go back again and again and again and again to offer the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But we thank you that they pointed the way, they pointed to a new sacrifice, a perfect and complete one presented by our Lord Jesus Christ who came to do your will, O God, in our stead who did it, and who took upon himself our sins. I ask you, Father, that my words now would be a blessing to your people, that they would encourage and uplift, that they would deliver from fears and equip with great confidence that can allow us to shake our fists in the face of the devil every time he comes to accuse us. Because we have a Savior, a great, 
great Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, my brothers and sisters, uh, it is a, a great privilege to be here with you this morning. And I hope that what I have to say to you will be something that you will find uh, comforting and strengthening in your faith in Christ, that you will be able to use it many, many times in the future whenever you come under condemnation, because since there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, every condemnation that we ever sense on ourselves is false. And I hope that you will remember that. I know people, dear, sincere Christians, who tremble over and over at verses 26 through 27 of this passage, which say, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And it is good and right that we should find these verses a stern and frightful warning against sinning, sinning willfully as it is portrayed here. We must never trifle with sin, never underestimate its ugliness and destructiveness, never underestimate its guilt in the sight of God and the, the hatred and the wrath with which he views every sin. But I believe many brothers and sisters misread this passage and so find themselves driven again and again into a mistaken fear. Certainly Arminians who believe one can be born again, repent of sin, trust in Christ's atoning work, be justified and therefore reconciled to God, yet can by falling into sin lose their justification, become alienated anew from God, and at the end of life enter not into heavenly joy and glory, but into hellish terror and humiliation. Certainly they misread this passage. They take it as a proof of precisely that belief. Yet it's not only Arminian brothers and sisters who often under, misunderstand these verses, but even many Calvinists are shaken to the core by them. Although convinced that no one who has been regenerated, converted by the Holy Spirit in repentance and faith, justified and, and so reconciled to God, will come short of heaven itself, they read these verses and from a tender and sincere conscience, say to themselves, well, I've sinned willfully since I came to know the true, the gospel, so there no longer remains a sacrifice for my sin. And then they fall into that certain fearful expectation of judgment. So many people, Arminians and Calvinists alike, go through life needlessly frightened by these verses while the very people who should be frightened by them ignore them. But the interpretation that leads to such repeated fear on the part of those who have cast their all on Jesus, who have confessed their own utter unworthiness and pled with him to save them by grace alone, to cleanse them by his blood alone, to reconcile them to his father by his priestly intercession alone, that interpretation fails to recognize both the role these two verses play in the overall structure of Hebrews and the light the immediate context throws on them. 
In this sermon, I hope to correct that interpretation and put in its place another that ought to strike fear into some hearts, but bring tremendous comfort into others. I want to do that by discussing four points. First, the original recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews. Its overall argument and how these facts inform the proper interpretation of the passage. Second, the immediate context and how it helps us to understand and properly apply the warning here given. Third, who should tremble at this passage and why. And fourth and finally, who should not tremble at this passage but should be comforted by it and why. First, who were the original recipients of this letter? And what is its overall argument? Well, the original recipients were people of Jewish descent who had publicly identified themselves with Jesus Christ, with the gospel, and with the church. That is, after all, why it is called the epistle to the Hebrews. These were people brought up under the Old Testament, accustomed to the daily and annual practices of the ceremonial law with the punctilious keeping of its boundary markers of circumcision, dietary laws, and other aspects of the cleanliness code by which they marked themselves off from the Gentiles and, had they understood them rightly, by which they should have been led to see the need for an atoning sacrifice beyond those of the, of the blood of animals to take away their sins. They were people who would, over years or decades, or maybe nearly a lifetime, have developed a consistent pattern for dealing with sin, a step-by-step means of restoring fellowship with God when they knew they had done wrong. They would confess their sin, and then they would take to the priest in the temple in Jerusalem a sacrifice suitable to it, and they would then trust the priest to present that sacrifice to God in a proper ceremony, shedding its blood and so making atonement for their sin. Until the sacrifice had been made and the priest had sprinkled them, or perhaps only some of the furniture of the temple, with the blood, these people would have sensed their unworthiness, their exclusion from the presence of God, their pollution and corruption. But the sacrifice having been made, they would remember the words of the psalmist David, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Then they could depart from the temple with some assurance that their sin had been forgiven, and they could resolve to resist the temptation in the future. But they were part of a nation that had as a whole lost sight of the real purpose of the sacrifices. The Jews generally thought it was the blood of bulls and goats or the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean that washed away the guilt of sin. They didn't realize that the blood of animals, although it was prescribed to purify the flesh, could never purify the soul. The sacrifices had all been pointers, parables meant to, to signify in advance the one sacrifice of a different sort, not of a beast, but of a, but of a man, and that not of a man like every other, but of a sinless man, a sinless man who was also the very Son of God. Neglecting this, most Jews at the time of Christ and the apostles thought the animal sacrifices were the, for the purifying not only of the flesh but also of the soul, and they rested in them. Yet their rest was not permanent. The very fact that these sacrifices had to be repeated after every infraction 
that the priests stood in the temple offering hundreds or even thousands of sacrifices every day of the year, that the high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies once every year on the Day of Atonement to offer the most holy sacrifice of all. This fact showed them that these sacrifices were incapable of cleansing them from all sin. Even if they could cleanse the conscience, which as Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 tells us they could not, they could never cleanse it permanently. And so these people had developed a pattern. Sin, feel conviction, offer a sacrifice. Feel the guilty conscience relieved. Feel reconciled to God. Sin again, feel conviction. Offer another sacrifice. Feel relieved again. Feel reconciled to God again. Sin again. And so on, day after day, year after year, throughout their lives. Does that by any chance sound familiar to you in terms of how you might sometimes live? Well, they could gain some comfort from their sacrifices, but not permanent, complete, final comfort. This was not because permanent comfort was simply, simply unavailable to them, but because they misunderstood the purpose of the sacrifices, seeking their comfort from them rather than from the greater sacrifice to which they pointed. That, that was the background of these Jewish Christians. They had grown up that way, lived that way, still lived as a tiny minority among a huge majority that continued to live that way, and like every real Christian, they struggled with temptation. And they often succumbed. And having identified themselves with Christ and the gospel and the church, they would have been taught the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ, that it fulfilled all that the earlier sacrifices foreshadowed. But as, as daily sinners with that background and vastly outnumbered by neighbors who still thought of the repeated sacrifices as essential to forgiveness and right standing with God, they would be faced also by the daily temptation to return to that pattern. For in it, they would find the comfort they'd found before, or so they thought. These were the people to whom the epistle to the Hebrews was written. And what was its purpose? What was its overall argument? It was that though he had revealed himself in various ways at various times in the past to the fathers, God had revealed himself afresh and better in his son, Jesus Christ, the exact representation of his person. It was that this son was better than the angels, for though they were creatures, he was the creator, God himself. It was that the great salvation wrought by this Son of God was so much better than that mediated by angels that those who neglected it put themselves in grave danger of God's judgment. It was that the Son was a better mediator than Moses, for Moses served as a servant in the household of God. The Son of God was its very maker. It was that there was a promise of entering into rest with God through the removal of sin pictured by the work of the priests, but that the Son of God was a better high priest because while the others were themselves sinful and therefore had to offer sacrifices again and again, he was sinless and therefore could, by a single sacrifice, do away with sin and guilt forever. It was that many of these Hebrew professors of the faith were falling short of their calling, remaining spiritual babes at best, 
when they should have been moving on to maturity, but that the apostle was confident of better things of those to whom he wrote, things accompanying salvation. The purpose and the structure of this epistle was that while God had established a covenant with Abraham by a promise, he had established a better, a better covenant with his son through a promise sealed by his inviolable oath. It was that the Son of God was a better priest than any of the long line of priests descended from Aaron, for he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, without beginning or end, and therefore his priesthood was forever. It was forever his, and it was non-transferable. It was that this Son of God, this new high priest after the order of Melchizedek, had become a surety of a better covenant and was able not just to give some temporary peace of conscience, but to save to the uttermost those who came to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. It was that this high priest's sacrificial service differed markedly from that of all the priests before him, in that he offered not the blood of animals, which could never take away sin, but his own blood in that he offered that sacrifice not in an earthly sanctuary made with men's hands as a mere replica of the heavenly sanctuary, but in the heavenly one itself. In that his sacrifice, because perfect and of infinite value, needed to be offered only once and was sufficient to wash away all sin, not repeatedly as had been the, the animal sacrifices of the Levitical system. And the... The theme, the purpose of Hebrews was that God had never really taken pleasure in the sacrifices of dumb, amoral animals, but did take pleasure in the sacrifice symbolized by these, namely the sacrifice of his son who had come to do his will. That is, to fulfill every demand of God's law on behalf of those for whom he would die and to bear every ounce of the holy wrath of God against sin as their substitute. It was that forgiveness, justification, reconciliation with God, sanctification, and ultimately arrival at the heavenly home, that better heavenly country for which all the saints of the Old Testament had longed, had always been and would always be not by good works, not by sacrifices, but by faith alone in the one all-sufficient, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice of the Son of God. It was that in bold confidence in this sacrifice, all, not just one high priest, but all who embraced it were able to enter, not the earthly holy of holies, the mere replica of the true holiest place, but the very throne room of God the Father by the blood of Jesus. It was that surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who themselves had finished the race by faith, these Hebrews who trusted in Christ must lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnared them and run with endurance the race that was set before them. It was, at last, that they must welcome the loving discipline of God as designed to effect this endurance in them to ensure their final arrival at the finish line, not of a burning and threatening Mount Sinai, but of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, 
to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things, that speaks forgiveness and peace rather than vengeance and warfare, that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The epistle to the Hebrews then was addressed to Jewish members of the visible church in the apostolic age who were called to walk by faith, not by sight, but whose long background constantly threatened to drag them back into walking by sight, by the sight of fresh sacrifices, even though those could never take away sin. These words, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. These words were written to these people, and they addressed a very specific sort of willful sin. They were meant to cause people to tremble in fear that they might not fall into that sin. Well, second, what does the immediate context teach us about the meaning of this warning? Does the warning here apply to each and every willful sin anyone might commit? Alas, if so, then we cannot escape the conclusion that none will be saved in the end. But there is reason to think otherwise. One reason to think otherwise is that the law given to Moses distinguished not only between intentional and unintentional sins, for the latter of which certain sacrifices of atonement were provided, but also between intentional sins for which ransom was, uh, by atonement was provided and intentional sins for which no ransom could be made. As the Puritan commentator John Owen points out, there were certain capital crimes, murder, adultery, incest, idolatry, blasphemy, and some others, for which no ransom was ever provided, but there were others for which it was. This by itself indicates that not all willful sins are unforgivable. But the immediate context makes it more clear that it is not just any willful sin, but a particular sort that is in mind. It does this first by drawing a comparison between sins under the law of Moses and this particular sin. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, says verse 28. Rejecting the law of Moses was not simply transgressing it, lying in violation of the ninth commandment, or stealing in violation of the eighth, or coveting in violation of the tenth, etc., but rejecting it outright, despising it, declaring oneself utterly exempt from it. Well, the sin here warned against is like that, only worse, according to verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? This sin was heinous for two reasons. Its object, that against which it was committed, and its manner how it was committed. Its object was threefold. The one who sinned willfully after coming to the knowledge of the truth sinned against Christ himself, against Christ's office, and against Christ's blood. 
By his sin, he trampled the Son of God underfoot, a phrase graphically depicting the most severe insult one could give in the culture of the day. He counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. That is, although his identification with Christ and the church implied his having been sanctified, that is, set apart, washed by Christ's blood, ironically, he called that sanctifying blood a common thing, common like that with which he had been familiar before as a Hebrew. And so he profaned it. And third, he insulted the spirit of grace, implicitly testified that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth who testified of the perfect saving work of Christ by the shedding of his blood on the cross had not told the truth, but had lied. The manner, the manner of this sin was also heinous. It was willful, high-handed, done with brazen contempt and challenge toward God, and it was persistent. It was sin done not in any ignorance, like Paul's sin of persecuting Christians and through them, Christ himself, sin for which Paul obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief, he wrote in 1 Timothy 1.13, or even sin done in weakness. It was instead presumptuous, high-handed sin, that it was willful is clear enough from the English translation, but that it was persistent is less obvious. In the Greek, though, it is certain, for we sin translates a present participle, meaning that it is an ongoing action, not a momentary lapse, but a persistent practice. Now, third, these, these things being said, who should tremble at this passage and why? Well, those who tremble at it, who should tremble at it, are those who willfully and persistently trample underfoot the Son of God, count the sanctifying blood of the covenant a common thing, and insult the Holy Spirit. And granted the recipients in the overall structure of Hebrews, who were such then, and who are they now? Well, in addition to all that we've seen so far, we get another clue from a few verses before. In verse 23, the apostle wrote, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He is in the midst of urging these Jewish professors of the faith to hold fast that confession without wavering. And the faith in mind is precisely that which he has been asserting throughout Hebrews, that a better mediator has provided a better sacrifice as surety of a better covenant to provide a better salvation for the people of God. The one then who commits this sin turns willfully and persistently away from, indeed against this faith. In apostolic times, it would have been one who resorted afresh to the Jewish sacrificial system, returning to the temple and there bringing animals for the priests to sacrifice on his behalf, thinking that would bring him peace of conscience. By so doing, he would be repudiating the faith, trampling under the foot, underfoot the Son of God, counting his blood a common thing, and insulting the Holy Spirit. But who commits this sin today? One who, knowing the Bible's teaching of the sufficiency and singularity of the sacrifice of Christ, resorted to some other means for the forgiveness of his sin. 
Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully here and not misunderstand me. Please do not get me wrong. I am not about to say that every Roman Catholic or even every convert from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism does this. There are many Roman Catholics who have never known the true gospel and therefore cannot have once professed to embrace it and then turned away and repudiated it. That should be no surprise since Rome never teaches the true gospel. And there are many Protestants who are attracted to Roman Catholicism for a variety of reasons, some better, some worse, but who don't recognize how its doctrines of justification and the mass contradict the biblical doctrine, the, the biblical gospel. But the Roman Catholic system, precisely because it purports to be a continuation of the Levitical priesthood, and because it teaches that the Mass is a reoffering of Christ in sacrifice to propitiate God for the forgiveness of our sins, is the modern counterpart of the pre-Christian Jewish system. And one who, having understood the biblical gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the ground of his once for all sacrifice on the cross, and that sacrifice alone, then turns to Rome and seeks justification and reconciliation with God through its system of mass and penance, has trampled underfoot the Son of God, counted his blood common, and insulted the Holy Spirit. Roman Catholicism is contemporary Judaism, and professing believers today need every bit as much to be warned against turning to Rome as did the Jewish churchmen to whom the epistle to the Hebrews came. The, Rome, the road to Rome, like the road to the temple in Jerusalem in the first century, is the road not to peace with God, but to a fearful expectation of judgment. But those who knowingly turn from the true gospel to Rome aren't the only ones who commit this sin. So also do those who, having professed their faith in Christ, their dependence on his sacrifice alone for justification, then turn away, willfully repudiate that gospel, and embrace, not through confusion and not in a moment of weakness and doubt, such as clearly plagued many of the Hebrews to whom this epistle was written, but willfully, knowing precisely what they're doing, they turn away to any system of justification and salvation other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and his sinless life and atoning death. Well, finally, though, who should be comforted by this passage, and why? First, no one should be comforted by it but those who have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. By specifying willful apostasy, intentional and persistent repudiation of a faith once professed, as that sin for which there remains no sacrifice, the passage does not say that everyone else is assured of salvation. There are more ways than apostasy to go to hell. Apostasy is the way that yields present awareness of one's eternal, irreversible condemnation, but mere complacency, mere failure to embrace Christ will equally land one in hell who never repents of it and comes to Christ with a broken and contrite heart. But second, 
Those should be comforted by this passage who do trust in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation and whose hearts can testify truthfully to themselves, no, I do not trample underfoot the Son of God, but love him as much as my feeble and sinful heart is capable of loving him. I do not count the blood of the covenant whereby I was sanctified a common thing, but I revere it as holy and precious. I do not insult the Holy Spirit of God by calling him a liar, but I say to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Look again at the last clause of verse 26. For those who sin willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, for apostates there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. They are without hope because they have willfully and persistently rejected the one and only sacrifice that can wash away any sin. But now look back eight verses and see if you don't recognize a familiar phrase in verse 18. Where there is remission of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. There in verse 18, a phrase that speaks doom to apostates, those who turn from faith in Christ to faith in any other sacrificial system or in their own good works or indeed anything else, a phrase that speaks doom to apostates speaks glorious comfort to believers. Every priest under the old covenant stood ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, this Christ, this Jesus, the Son of God, this beloved Savior, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. His sacrificial atoning work finished the job, secured the salvation of all who trust in him once and for all at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That is, those who are called apart from the great mass of mankind and given new life by the Holy Spirit, the life that is faith in Christ. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. There is no, pardon me, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. There is no offering for sin. Why? Because Christ has already done it all. There is no offering for sin because none is needed. There is no offering for sin because the one offering by Christ of himself, uh, of himself cleansed us forever from the filth of sin, delivered us forever from the guilt of sin, and reconciled us forever to our loving and holy Father. In conclusion, let me ask you a question now. In what or in whom are you trusting for the forgiveness of your sins, for your reconciliation with the holy and righteous God, for your deliverance from hell and entry into heaven? Are you trusting in yourself, in your own good deeds, or your faithful church attendance, in your piety, or even, God forbid, your trust itself? Are you having faith in faith? 
Or are you trusting in your sacramental union with Christ through the ministry of the church by baptism and the Lord's Supper? Or are you trusting in your parents or your spouses or your children's ties with Christ to give you such ties secondhand? I trust no one here trusts in any of those things. But if you do, I warn you, there is nothing at the end of the road for those who trust in them but judgment and fiery indignation. And I implore you because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Be reconciled to God not by any good thing of your own, but by Christ's righteousness alone, made yours when you renounce all trust in anything else and trust in him alone. Or, instead, have you turned from all other objects of trust and staked your all on Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone? If so, then I am confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, even though I have spoken this warning to you. Yes, even because I have spoken this warning to you. Then I have comforting words for you. There is no longer any offering for sin because Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are indeed our full and complete Savior. You are the one who has paid the penalty of all our sin. You are the one who has reconciled us to the Father who loved us even while we were yet sinners and who sent you to die for us. O oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the words that I've spoken here now, those that are true, those that are properly in accord with your word, I pray that you would implant them deeply in our hearts. May we truly be comforted and strengthened in those times that come again and again in our lives because of our sin, when we feel far from you, when we feel freshly alienated. May we be comforted by the knowledge that, that you've made us accepted in the beloved, accepted in <coughs> your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us to rest in that comfort and that assurance. Father, if in any way I've I've misused your word, and I know that I'm fallible. I know that, that this is a difficult passage on which men of God have different views. Well, anything that I've said here today that is untrue, I pray that you just snatch it out of our hearts. Thank you, Father, for, for the, the blessing of your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of our inheritance and who 
works in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. We thank you for all these things in our Lord Jesus' blessed and holy name. Amen.